Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. All right. Uh, We um, are in a series in the book of Ruth. So if you're brand new with us, Ruth is a really small book, four chapters in what's commonly called the Old Testament. comes right after Judges, information you probably didn't need to know or care about. Um, But uh, it's a funny book where any of you who've been around church and those who are part of the family may go, why go back to Ruth in a season of Advent when we are like turning our eyes towards Christmas? Why? And uh, one of the big reasons why we shared at the end of the message last week that actually the person of Ruth finds herself and her husband Boaz, which we'll get to this character now that we hit Ruth 2 here this week, in the genealogy of Jesus. And that is radical for all sorts of reasons. And that's not the sermon I'm going to preach today. But I think it's really important to point out in a highly patriarchal society, the way that God in his sovereignty seems to set up how Jesus, the Son of God, God made flesh coming into the world, he puts a character, a Moabite, a non-Hebrew woman in that genealogy, along with a number of very, um, let's say, sketchy characters as it relates to the class system, as it relates to um, the holiness of a bloodline, the purity of a bloodline. And so many have talked about how even in Jesus's genealogy, you have the openness and expansiveness and inclusion of the God of the universe. Because at the very beginning of the story, these first people who we read about again and again in the Old Testament, these Hebrew people, are meant to be a blessing for the whole world. The trajectory at the beginning of the Old Testament is about expansiveness and opening in. God started with a person and then a people and a tribe, not to be tribal, but it was a tribe for the benefit of all. It was a tribe that was meant to bless all. And then we see Jesus come on the scene and the whole story of the New Testament, you could basically boil down to the inclusion of the Gentile, the outsider. God has always been for the whole world. This God was different. This is why, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, the Judeo-Christian story, the church story that like, you've probably been around, is unbelievably radical because it just introduces a brand new idea in thought. It's one of the most written about things, even by people who don't want to buy into faith in Jesus, who maybe wouldn't don the doors of a church. It is this conversation of this idea of one God overall, a tribe for the benefit of all tribes. It pushes back against just most logic, common sense, and evolutionary trajectory. It's fascinating. And we see the seeds of this welcome and openness and love and expansiveness, even in the genealogy of Jesus. So today, I want to talk about this word that we find in Ruth 1 and Ruth 2 and at the end of Ruth. 
this word that speaks to this, this love and, and a sort of loyalty and openness that we find in God and what it means for us to respond to this. And so talking about love is always tricky because half, like more than probably hopefully half the room who come to our church are like, yeah, God loves me. Sweet. It's good. And it doesn't tend to always impact us the way we would like it to or the way we maybe think it should. Or we're like, okay, that's great. I always want to be reminded of that. Sure, there's some way I could think about it deeper. And then for others of us, like the word love is fairly problematic. And this is like the trope, if you've ever been around a church, that pastors like talk about all the time, but it's so true, right? It's like there's so many different things. You love like cake and you love your partner. You love your dog, right? And you love your parents. You guys remember the phrase in um, elementary school when, I don't know, maybe you were a little more elevated than I was in elementary school. But I remember um, I was on this like tick for a little while where if somebody said to me, um, uh, like, talked about, uh, let's say somebody in the room is talking about how much they love their dog. Man, I love my dog. And then, does anyone know what like the fourth grader would say? Yeah. Why don't you marry it? Anybody else have that sweet one-liner like packed away in your fourth grade like pocket? Oh, you love your dog so much? Why don't you, you love your sister so much? Why don't you marry her? Like it's just, that's only in certain parts of the country. <laughs> Not funny. Not funny. Inappropriate. Bad. Right? The, we have these different like convoluted ideas of love. Um, th there's also in elementary school, there's some rules about love, right? There's some rules about how you express it. There's a protocol. You don't go to the person that you like kind of like directly, right? Anyone remember the rules? I was thinking about this protocol. The first one is like you, you, first you write a note. You don't go to them directly. And the note usually contains three points. Do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. Circle one, please. No, number two is do you love me? Yes, no, maybe. Circle and then the third one for me would be like, would you be my girlfriend? Yes, no, maybe. And then you don't deliver that note directly. No, no, no. You call, you call your best man and you'd be like, hey, bro, can you be a mailman for a minute? Can you slip that in there? Right? Or better yet, then usually that guy will like find a, the girlfriend, like the, the maid of honor, you know, of the other third grade girl and give it to them and then it'll get passed along and then you hope that note gets back to you. I just remember one time being, uh, getting a note back and it was like, no, I don't like you. No, I don't love you. Yes, I will marry you. Like it was, like clearly missed the, missed the assignment. Right? And this is not how, this is not how love really should work, right? You, <laughs> it's not real love. Uh, a friend of mine uh, shared this story. He was uh, really interested in this woman who was a like Southern belle to the core. Whatever image you have in your head of Southern belle, she was it, is it. And I just remember him sharing about her going, uh, her um, really being, um, you know, a bit at a distance as he was trying to win her, court her. And he was getting frustrated. Like, why is she not pursuing me at all? She clearly kind of likes me. And she, he, he, my, my boy goes ahead and confronts her directly. Like, hey, like, what's up? I feel like I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm coming for you. I'm trying to love you and take you out and all this stuff. 
And her response, I'm not, by the way, baptizing what I'm about to say. This is just a story. But her response was, that's not my job. He's like, what do you mean? It's not my job to pursue you. You pursue me. So for all the women who align with that particular way of thinking, like you can just amen. And for all those that are like, it's so archaic, then move on. I don't want to get any emails about that. Right? But basically, like, she was just like, no, this is how this goes. You have a job. You're the initiator. In her cultural context and how she was raised, she was like, that's on you. That's on you. You're the, you, you, you are the one who is supposed to pursue. You don't just put a vibe out and maybe I'll pick up on it and then ask you. <laughs> Some of the women in the room, that was, I know I'm going to get amens from you. You have to step out. Real love will risk rejection. And so I want to start this message and leaning into this word that we're going to talk about in Ruth um, with uh, a detour to 1 John where we read about the nature of God's love. God being the initiator and us being the responder. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. This is love. You may not uh, agree with this, align with this, but as followers of Jesus, we pay attention when we hear a, this is blank. This is love. Not that we move toward God, but that he moved toward us. If you don't know your role, you will not have the sort of peace that you want in your heart. You need to understand who's the responder and who's the initiator. I mean, so many people who are trying to follow Jesus and who are living this sort of up and down, anxious, depressed existence, up and down, happy one minute, sad the next. And, and many times, there's all sorts of reasons, obviously, but so many times it's because they forget that they are the responder and receiver, not the initiator. This is what we call grace, unmerited favor, God moving toward us. When you become the initiator, then the pressure is on you. But when you know that your job is the responder, that you're just responding to what God has already done, the pressure is on, I guess you'd say, God. I'm trying to earn my way to anything. I'm not trying to, to, to do something to receive anything. I'm not trying to get God's attention. According to the way of Jesus, you already have God's attention. And see, when I think I'm the initiator, I live one moment like I deserve something, and then I live the next moment trying to earn something, and both of those are false. You following me? The responder. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. I invite people to come to Intro to Sanctuary and to sign up for teams, not because um, I'm trying to get people, like we want people to feel guilty. By the way, if you come to anything like Intro to Sanctuary or Bible studies or meet with people like in order to like feel like you're earning something or whatever, like checking some church box, please don't come. Like, like don't go to Intro to Sanctuary because you might feel guilty about not getting involved in a church and you have the voice of like mom or dad in the back. No, we, we give or we move towards service in the life of the church because we've already received. And so this sort of long introduction right now to the book of Ruth is meant to set up a moment that we are having in-house 
today. Hopefully you caught all the, all the communication. Today we're, we're taking our future builders offering. And we've been talking about this over the last couple weeks. We want to make sure we give above and beyond our regular giving to make sure that, for instance, every child in the Providence foster system is getting a gift. And not just a random gift, but getting a bag with their actual name monogrammed on the bag. Because friends of ours were so tired of seeing foster kids carry trash bags with their stuff from foster home to foster home. Bringing dignity and love and life. So we want to make sure we... We take care of that. There's these initiatives within the life of our church around things we want to see happen at Hope High School, about ways that we want to care for our community and grow as devout followers of Jesus, ways we want to accelerate the vision that God has given us. And so today, what we've been doing the last couple weeks is preparing for this. We had a huge gala on Wednesday. How many were at the gala? Right, such a blast. We just basically, for those of you who are new to our church, a bunch of us who are regular givers, we got together and had dinner and then danced like really hard for a couple hours. <laughs> and we just celebrated because God says it's better to give than it is to receive. And he invites us to give from a place of joy. We give because he has given. He's the initiator. We are the responder. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And so I, I want to invite the, the, the giving ushers to, to come and, and be ready for us here. Because what we're going to do, I know this is like a funny spot to do the offering. We don't normally do this. But today we wanted to have like a focused day where we just said, let's see if we can knock this out. Our goal is $50,000 above our regular offering. $50,000 for this Future Builders Fund to accelerate the vision and build the future of our community and the work that God's inviting us to do. And so uh, in front of you, there are these pledge cards. And again, I want to reiterate for all those who are brand new to church and are like, oh, this is why I don't come to church. They're always asking for money. We're just not afraid of that conversation anymore. Right, Sanctuary? Right? Right? Like this is the stuff to follow Jesus and to recognize we have received the love and grace and mercy of Jesus. We want to live very differently when it comes to our finances. That's why so many of you, like we have the unbelievably generous church. Statistically, our church gives above and beyond nationwide churches our size. It's amazing. But we take this offering every year because there are some things that God invites us to, to accelerate and move into the future in really specific ways. If you've missed all that communication, take that card, take it home. If you're married or... Um, if, if you've got like people you need to talk to about this, to pray about this, pray about this and come back and we'll kind of do like a quick part two next week. But for a lot of you, you came today ready. You've been reading about what we're focused on, about what our aims are, about the things that we want to see happen. And just in terms of going ahead of us, I know not everyone gave from the gala, but we're already at like, I think around 10 to 12 grand, like into that 50 grand. Already, just kind of ready to go. And so we would love, I don't know if this is, will be possible or not this week and next to kind of wrap this up, to hit that mark, to be able to, these key things that we want to give to accelerate the vision that we would hit this together as a community. So I'm going to just begin to kind of, I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to start teaching and that basket's going to come around. And so if this is that moment for you where you um, are ready to give and you came ready with a number of mine, I want to invite you to do that. Or if you want to take that pledge card home, and think about that and pray about that. 
That's more than like, all that we're asking folks to do is actually just to pray, God, how would you invite me? How would you invite us as a family to be generous in this season? To respond to this love. So let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you, Lord. I just, I am blown away year after year of the great generosity that exists within this family. And Lord, so I just pray against any weird religiosity, anything out of just tradition, anything that's rooted out of trying to earn something or check some mark. Lord, we have received so much. We have received, Lord, your love and grace and provision. How could we not? join you in the renewal of our city. And so as we look to all the Love Providence initiatives, Lord, we pray that this funding will go where it needs to go, that the mentoring programs, that the support around the football program, the support of young life, the support of these foster kids going forward, Lord, that the money would go where it needs to go. Lord, as we pray, as we give towards our prayer and Holy Spirit ministry, as we grow, Lord, in in power and awareness and attentiveness to what you're doing, Lord. We just bless that work in the year to come. As we pray and give towards discipleship, Lord, towards the launching of our women's ministry, Lord, towards the deepening of discipleship, towards our year of biblical literacy that we're launching on, and all the resources attached to that, Lord, to all that you're doing through Pathway, Lord, we just want to give faithfully towards that. And towards our family ministry, Lord, as we look to just serve the 75-plus kids who on a given like three-week rotation come in and out of our church, Lord, to bring in, Lord, strong staff and, and resources and expansion of that ministry to be able to support that work and to care for the, the, the most vulnerable among us, the youngest among us, Lord. And so um, as we give now, Lord, we just um, pray that you would just move mightily in joy in our hearts. Pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and everyone said... Amen. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. We are responding to the God that is love. And I think the reason this doesn't always hit, the reason it doesn't always have this profound impact isn't just because some of us come to church and like hear it all the time. It's that we like don't carry with us this deeper and greater definition of love. I have um, three uh, little girls. One's not so little anymore, but at home. So my house is full of cards. My house is full of cards. With like, depending on the you know, age of the child, um, some sort of amoeba-like blob uh, on the front that apparently is a whole story. My youngest will be like, Dad, I drew a picture of us when we were driving to get our Christmas tree, and it's just chaos, right? It's like a Pollock. And then, and then you have, um, you know, as it goes up, they're starting to learn to write. And so my middle child now will write a couple sentences. And it's just like, Daddy, you are the best. Daddy, love you. Daddy, Daddy, Rowan, Daddy, love, Daddy. It's like all the words. She just knows a couple words. Let's so just hit the words. My house is full of these cards. It's only since my eldest daughter has hit the age of 10 that, you know, the the, the cards are getting a little more elaborate. But the reality is, um, is that all these, like, sweet little, like, cards of love, um, they, they, uh, 
my children do not have the language yet to truly express how they feel, or at least how they hopefully feel. Back in uh, 1956, renowned atheist C.S. Lewis turned Christian wrote this letter to a young American writer offering the following piece of advice. He said this, don't use words too big for the subject. Don't say infinitely when you mean very. Otherwise, you'll have no word left when you want to talk about something really infinite. Whenever it comes to talking about God, and specifically today, God's love, the reality is we're all kind of like little kids, right? We're all little kids. We try to articulate the experience that we've had of his love towards us, but we don't actually have the words in our language or in our vernacular to point to how potent, how potent, how creative, and how generous, and how powerful his love actually is. I swear we're going to get to Ruth, but turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 34. If you tried to describe what God is like, there are a few passages that are repeated so often as followers of Jesus, we need to be able to palm those things, like memorize them, internalize them. These are the things you get like tattooed on your body. And this is one of those passages. If you just try to describe what God's like, when people wrote the scriptures and pondered the mystery of God, they consistently went back to God's character like this. So if you're new to the way of Jesus, like just lean in for a moment. Because if you're like, what is this God like? This is one of the most often repeated pieces of scripture. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is what God is like. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with and the word of the day today is chesed. Can you say chesed? Give me one more. Spit on your neighbor's neck. Chesed. <laughs> it translates, um, it, basically it's a really hard word to translate into any language. All right, there are words that really we have a hard time getting. Anyone familiar with the, um, the Danish word um, huga? Wow, some of you got lit up. Some of y'all have desaturated Instagram accounts. Huga. Huga is this, basically this Danish idea this, that is, um, it's like a vibe. So it's like candles and cozy and meaningful conversation and a little warm drink in winter. So it's like that vibe. Anyone go amen? Right, we need a little bit more of that in New England. It's that word does not have an English counterpoint. Counterpart. There is no, like I had, to, I had to give you a sentence to get at huga. This is the word, the same with the word chesed. It's translated a bunch of different ways in the scripture. It's translated mercy, loving kindness, unfailing love, and steadfast love. Those are the hits. Kindness, mercy, love. Ultimately, chesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. If you grab onto any word in that definition, what I'd like you to grab onto is the word loyal. 
loyal. It's covenantal. It has this sense of like a conversation with God and people. Loyalty is in short supply, is it not, friends? Loyalty is in short supply, is it not? My father, who's here today, has a line that he repeats. I think I've heard him repeat this in almost every wedding he's ever done. And he's there with the bride and the groom. And he's talking a bit about the covenant that they're about to make. A promise. I don't use that word covenant very often. Commitment to each other. And he says something to the effect of, in a world full of broken promises, we do not stop making new ones. We don't stop covenanting, committing, even though we know we can't control the other person here. We can't control that family member. We can't control that boss. We can't control that spouse. We can't control that child. Anyone been on the other end of a broken covenant, of a broken promise, of disloyalty. said is the kind of love demonstrated by someone determined to keep a promise and motivated to endure and maintain that covenant through self-giving generosity. It's concrete. It's action-taking love. It's the difference between saying the words I love you and acting in honor of your commitment to another person by serving them. To every person who struggles with words devoid of actions, would you raise your hand? (laughs) Some of y'all are okay. It's okay. I'm a words guy. I get it. Sometimes I don't need actions. I just need the word. But my guess is that if I like really drilled down and really pressed everybody, hopefully every or most every hand would go up. How many struggle with the idea of the spoken word of love Completely disconnected from the actions of love. Hesed is God's loyal love and generous commitment to his often undeserving people. Why am I talking about Hesed? Because many commentators looking at this book of Ruth, they give us the story that kickstarts thousands of years in advance, what will be the Christmas story and the coming of Jesus. This word, many think, really encapsulates the main theme of this whole story. So I don't know if you received a copy of Ruth when you came in today, but we're going to be in Ruth too. Ruth is a foreigner, married this Israelite man, Tragically, her husband dies, we talked about this last week, along with his brother and his father. All Ruth has left is her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, who has nothing to give her. Naomi tells Ruth she should go back to her people, like go back, her and her two sisters. There's nothing for you. But instead, Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side and to take care of her. The word that comes up in that 
point in chapter 1, that action towards Naomi is chesed. And, and we saw last week that that love, that loyalty, Ruth's chesed was not conditional or based on anything Naomi did. And in fact, it simply seems to be some sort of expression of Ruth's character. Ruth just says, where you go, I will go. And Naomi is like, I am a bitter, broken woman. God has been horrible to me. You are an absolute fool to come with me. And both their sisters at first, both her daughters, daughter-in-laws, come to her and they're like, no, 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 we're going to go with you, we're going to go with you. And then Orpah honestly kind of smartens up. She's like, you're right, why would I go with you? I love you, gives her a kiss, goes back to Moab. And Ruth is like, no, 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 I've heard the stories. There's something in her. I don't know if it hit her right in the face in that moment. Or she had heard the stories being married to this Jewish man of who God was and how faithful this God was, even as Naomi was like, I, I, I don't even know how to carry on. But there was enough trust in Naomi's heart that she went back home when she heard that there was bread and food now in her country. And, and Ruth, with this chesed, this loyal love, goes back with her. And so chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And Ruth goes out to look for food. And it just so happens she ends up picking grain with a guy named Boaz. So we read, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man standing from the clan of Elimelech. Everyone say Elimelech. That sounds nice whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, this wasn't a weird thing. She wasn't trying to steal or be a thief. There was actually a whole system that favored the poor and the oppressed. We hear about um, in Deuteronomy that there was law, leave the edges of your field so the, for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the Widow, yes. There was a system in place to care for the most vulnerable. And this is what Ruth is doing. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. She went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. I don't know exactly, no one knows exactly what this would have looked like at this day and age. But the idea of picking up the scraps, I just imagine as the harvesters are going through, banging the, the, or uh, cutting the barley down, and she's just walking behind and picking up the scraps behind them. Go ahead, my daughter. She went out and began to glean. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you, and also with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseers of his heart. So Boaz is a big deal. He's got property. He has workers. And he sees Ruth. Who does that young woman belong to? Now you hear belong and immediately like, she'd be like, no one. Women don't belong to anyone. And we talked about this again last week. This was actually incredibly forward, whatever word you want to use, progressive. This was actually for the safety of women who had no standing in their society. 
And this belong wasn't ownership. It was about tribe. What family are you a part of and do you belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite. So she's those people who live across the way who are our enemies, who came back from Moab with Naomi. Well, we know now that Boaz knows Naomi. She said, please let me glean and rather and gather among the sheaves behind the harvester. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the woman. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. Boaz is being obedient to the law. He is following God's law. Take care of the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And not only is it, yeah, yeah, sure, you can glean. He begins to move towards her in compassion and care. At this, she bowed down with her face in the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you noticed me? Again, he doesn't just allow it. That's the law. But he notices her. And what does she say? How does she refer to herself? A what? Foreigner. She knows who she is. She's an outsider. Her husband has died, so she is not connected with the family any longer. This is how she sees herself. This is how she understands how others are going to see her. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Oh, Boaz is on the inside. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people who did not, you did not know before. You traveled a journey. You took a step in a direction that few would have taken. He sees her. He sees her. You left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know. And he says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Come on. He's like, I see you. I acknowledge you. Again, remember, this narrative is centered in a very patriarchal society. is centered on a woman. And lest you think this is just Boaz coming in, all right, here's like the prince to save the day. Actually, no, he is like, I've heard of what you've done. I've heard of how faithful you've been. I've heard, and he's going to use this word in a minute, the chesed, that God shows us and emulates us that we receive and we put into practice for one another. I've seen it. Man, may God reward you. He's like, I'm going to do my part to be used by God to reward you. But may God reward you. Been told about all you've done. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, she said. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant. Think about the anxiety that Ruth is holding. The unbelievable ache. How is this going to go? Am I going to provide for my bitter mother, who I just left everything I know, with no male figure to take, take care of the family. Like, it's all like everything societally puts me at such at risk. And what does she say? Whew. 
ease. Can you feel that? Can you feel that in the narrative? Have you ever had a moment where you felt that ease and rest? Oh, oh, God's law is good because God's law has protected me. This is not just the virtuous Boaz. This is Boaz being obedient. Being obedient. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, have some bread. Dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. Bro, you've, ne- you've never had roasted barley at harvest season in Bethlehem? It's a, it's, a, it's a joke. She ate all she wanted and had some leftover. We all here? All right. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. Don't rebuke her. Like, give her some extra. What are we seeing here? I mean, generosity and commitment. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about one ephath. She carried it back down, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. So she's like bringing scraps home, bringing the stuff that Boaz is leaving out for her. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Like, what happened? We've got nothing, and you came home with something. Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work for today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his chesed to the living and the dead. She added, and that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. We're going to get to that phrase next week. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with the workers until finishing the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother and law. This word will come up again, like it did in chapter one, it did here in chapter two and chapter three. This loving, loyal kindness. I want to give you a quick biblical overview before we land this plane. In Genesis 28, in the story of Jacob, Jacob is this treacherous liar, even to his own family. But despite that, God chooses him and repeats the promise he made to Jacob's grandfather that he would have a huge family through whom, all, uh, through whom God would restore all of the nations. And so 20 years later, when Jacob realizes how undeserving he is, he says this in the scriptures, I'm not worthy of all the chesed you have shown me. And he's right. But God's chesed was never about Jacob's worth in the first place. It was this loyalty. In Exodus, God's chesed continues into the story of Jacob's descendants. This is the storyline behind Ruth. When they are enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, we're told that God remembered his promise to Abraham and Jacob. So God defeats Egypt, raises up Moses, liberates the people, and leads them into the promised land. And in this story, 
This is called an act of chesed because it was about God keeping his word. Now, on their way to the promised land, the Israelites are scared of all the nations around them, and they doubt that God can protect them. So the people threaten to kill Moses and appoint a new leader to take them back to Egypt. Have you ever had a moment where you were delivered? You were freed? God did something amazing, and you forgot. There's this old hymn that has the line in it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I always like substituting fear for that. Prone to wander, Lord, I fear it. The command that comes up again and again and again in the scriptures is remember, 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 remember. Have you ever had a moment where you were restored and set free and God's grace like hit you square in the face and then you forgot? And then fast forward a couple years, you're like, I don't even know who God is anymore. Take me back to Egypt. I hate this. You forget. We let the storms of the world and our circumstances somehow dictate what we have known to be true. Is that anyone's story? I've had seasons like that. And so notice something here. God's understandably hurt his people who he's delivered and rescued and who is walking with in the desert, in the wilderness. They are grumbling. They're grumbling. God is literally, I mean, the angry is hurt. The, the language is hurt, but Moses steps in and says, forgive the sin of these people. So he's talking to God because of what? Your great chesed. Moses asks God to forgive, not because the people deserve it, but because it's consistent with God's character. It's consistent with God's character. Do you get this? Like Moses is like, Look, these people have walked away from you. But God, because of like who I know you to be, your loyal covenant love that you pour out on people who do not deserve it, would you please pour it out? And God is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm like. <laughs> Good form. And he recommits himself to the people. In the Bible, God is loyal and loving for no other reason than it's just who God is. The greatest question in our world, again and again and again, who, anyone who recognizes the strangeness of the world and the dead end of atheism goes, what then is God like? And again and again and again, we are told what God is like is nothing like our modern day Santa Claus. It is a loyal commitment and love moving toward us. There's this one place. There's this one place where the prophet Hosea compared Israel's chesed to a morning mist. Because people have chesed. People have love, however brittle, however unintegrous. And Israel's chesed, Hosea says, it's like a morning mist. It's here one moment and like gone the next. Have you ever been on the receiving end of that kind of chesed? That kind of love? That like, yeah, it was there for a season. Maybe you were the, the antagonist. <laughs> Maybe you were the one who like had that, like you were committed to something and it's just committed to someone, committed to a cause, committed even to the Lord. And it just, it wasn't tended to, it wasn't leaned into, it wasn't cultivated. And it was like a mist. But the prophet says this, people's chesed is like this, but God's chesed is enduring. We say enduring. 
So it says this in Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then 26 times, you think we repeat songs like a little too often or choruses a little too often? 26 times in Psalm 136, his chesed is forever. His chesed is forever. His chesed never fails. His chesed is forever. One Psalm, this word, this loyal love comes up again and again and again. And so after centuries of God's people betraying their commitments, and after humanity's long history that continues of violence and death, God still kept his promise. I don't know sometimes how to operate in this world because I've been on the receiving end of so many stinking broken promises. I've been on the receiving end Anyone else having like a knife thrown in their back? Anyone else? Don't leave me alone. Anyone else? Anyone else been in a space? This hasn't been my story, thankfully. I thank my mom and dad for this. But some of you have been in a space for a long time of just wondering just how loyal God's love is. Just how far can you wander away? Just how far? And you've got so much pain and brokenness, some of it caused by yourself, some of it caused by others, and it's just, can I really trust this loyal love? After just all this time throughout the scriptures of people betraying their commitment to God, God keeps his promise in this dramatic and drastic way about halfway through that big book you're holding, by becoming human and binding himself to us in the person of Jesus. And the people who followed Jesus of Nazareth, those first followers of Jesus, just like many of you, would say they've encountered the God of Chesed, who is full of loyal love and faithfulness. We see the Greek version of this word come up again and again. We see the themes of Ruth and Boaz come up again and again. This is how they encountered life with Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. God opened up a new future for all of us. God did this. Why? 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 I like to stop myself regularly and ask, God, why? Why me? Why us? Why your forgiveness? Why your grace? Why? And the answer is, I think, fairly simple. It's just who God is. When you know someone's doing something not just out of duty, but out of some sense of their identity, it moves you, doesn't it? Anybody? Like, it moves you. You're like, you're not just doing this because it's the right thing which is a weird way I understand to talk about the God of the universe. But it's like, it's just who God is. And when we experience the power of God's loyal love shown to us in Jesus, it compels then all of us to reimagine why and reimagine how we can show chesed back to God and to the people around us. Who's initiating and who's responding? This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. This is love. 
And so what does it mean for us to walk into this next week with hands that are open to receive? God is initiating. You ever send somebody a text and you know they saw it, but they don't respond? Right? Like, you, like the bubbles come up for a minute. You know what I'm talking about? All those that have the holy app, like iPhone. I'm not talking about Android people. I don't know what happens with you. But, kidding. Right? When you text somebody and you're waiting for a response, you were even in the middle of a conversation, and then suddenly they go dark. Some of you are like, that's you, Andrew. And like the bubbles, the bubbles like come up for a minute, like the dot, 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 dot. And you're like, oh, they're typing something, and then nothing comes through. If you ever want to produce anxiety in somebody, by the way, if you're having a serious conversation, that's how you do it. <laughs> right? There's these little, like, this little moment of like, it's like, so annoying. If you're on the receiving end of that and you don't respond, it's like, this is the nature of God's love. The nature of chesed is to respond. <laughs> God has texted us. <laughs> Done more than that. God has drawn near. God has given all that can be given. God is loyal. God has signed both sides of the covenant. God has moved towards his people again and again. And if I can just preach for a minute, again and again and again towards us. This is the nature and character of our God. This is why people throw their whole lives into the life of the kingdom because they're like, I am becoming aware of just how much I have received. And so any movement towards giving of their life to others, of sacrificial love towards someone who doesn't deserve it, the love of an enemy which is explicitly commanded by God, this movement towards, the, I mean, how could we not? Do you know what I've received? Do you know what I've received? Do you know what I've received? We are invited to respond. And so we, we fail to be like Ruth sometimes because we've forgotten where we came from, forgotten what he has done, and forgotten what it means to trust that the love of God stronger than anything else. In fact, the love of God doesn't fail. And what would you say? Something that never fails. What does that always do? It wins. It always wins. It wins. Walking with God. Walking in chesed. Being open to chesed. Takes us, one writer says into a, quote, sea of possibilities that stretch our capacity for sacrifice and our imagination for obedience, reminding us there's always more. There's always more. Holy Spirit, teach us Teach us again, Lord, as we close our time of the love that is indiscriminate, of that chesed that is unearned, that chesed that is persistent. 
we receive, Lord, this word into our hearts. That you love us with a kind of loyal love. An indiscriminate love. A joy-filled love. Amen. This morning, I woke up really early. So I really needed to look over this message again. I was feeling a little unprepared. My youngest daughter comes downstairs. She had like burst into tears upstairs and comes down. She's really tiny. She climbs in between my wife and I. My mom is trying hard to like stay asleep and not ident- not notice that she's there. <laughs> Rightly so. And I'm up in my bed just working on my computer. And she looks over to me, looks me in the eye, smiles. I can tell she's just watching the screen. I close it, put it on my bedstand turn down put my face like right next to her face I felt like I had this little glimpse little sure little glimpse that I imagined and could feel in my heart just how loyal like how I would do anything for And for some reason, I just had this thought of, like, her rebelling in her teenage years and making a bunch of, like, really stupid decisions and, like, like just walking away from the faith for a season. Like, I, like, had this, like, like dark reel, like, play. And it was like God in this moment wanted to go, like, I said, I said, this loyal, undeserving love, Andrew, that I have given you for this one right here. I don't pray any of that or <laughs> speak that over my daughter. But it was like I got this picture, this feeling in my heart, like this is how God sees me. This is God's posture towards me. This is God's character. And so I don't know, um, obviously I don't know who needs to say yes to this for the first time, for the second time, for the 20th time, for the thousandth time. But this right here, there's one simple invitation is just to say yes. To say yes to this love. Yes to this God. This is love. Not in this moment following a sermon, try really hard to love God. No, this is love in this moment right here. Try really hard to just receive it. To accept it as is. And say yes. And so I just pray, come Holy Spirit. The altar's open. If you want to come forward and you want to pray, all that means for those that are new, if you want someone to pray for you, there's something happening in your heart that doesn't quite make sense in your head yet, and you just want to, like, get a minute with somebody, or you just want to come down front and respond, I encourage you to do that. You've been walking with Jesus for years, but you're heavy carrying a heavy load, and you need someone to just, like, put their hand on your back for a minute and just receive 
that loyal love again. Someone just to bless you with, you need to know God's posture and heart toward you. You need to know the gospel that you've been saved by grace through faith. There's nothing you've done to earn his love and grace towards you. If you need that, come. Communion's open because if you just need to come and actually taste and receive this, come. And a few, you just need to like sit tight. You need to stand and sing out. All my life you have been faithful and all my life you've been so, so good, then do it. But let us lean in. Let us respond. Let us respond. No, no like few bubbles and then delete the text. Let us respond. And so as we end every teaching, we pray, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.